and welcome to another podcast of Sunshine USA here on the Anchor FM network, and uh, that of course includes Spotify and other platforms that we use here on Sunshine USA. My name is Warren Landis, I'm your host and Bible teacher here on Sunshine USA, and uh, as usual it is great to welcome you into my home, and uh, we'll take advantage of this opportunity to pray a little bit, and also to study the Word of God, the Bible. Uh, About 48 hours ago, you'll recall it was Wednesday night, and I did a special prayer broadcast. Uh, We were praying for some thunderstorms uh, that were beginning to develop all across the southeastern United States, places like Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Arkansas, and they were headed to South Carolina, where I live the next day. And we just pray that the Lord's hand of protection would be upon us. And I know here in Greenville, South Carolina, we we basically pretty much missed everything. We got in on some rain, but that was about it. And and only at the very end did we get a little bit of lightning and thunder. But no damaging winds, no tornadoes. And, of course, now I know in some parts of the southeast they did have uh, some damaging weather. But for the most part... um, the whole area was spared the kind of damage it could have had. And we see that as nothing less than the hand of God uh, very mercifully looking out for us. And that was definitely an answer to prayer. And it just reinforced my belief that prayer is powerful. And not only is prayer powerful, guess what? Prayer works. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, in our Bible study tonight, let's turn in our Bible study to the uh, uh, Gospel of Mark, and we're in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. I'm slowly but surely tuning to it (laughs) here on my smartphone. Actually, I have two uh, Bible apps on my smartphone, and uh, one Bible app is called BibleGateway.com, and then um, another app that I have is called uh, the Bible Hub, and uh, both of these apps are very good. Uh, Both of these apps, of course, have uh, the Bible available in several versions and uh, it's also translated into several languages. On uh, BibleGateway.com, for example, they uh, have an oral edition of the Bible uh, for some of the versions, which means you could listen to the scripture being read, and you could even select who you would like to read it to you, or if you would like uh, the dramatized version. Now, the dramatized version... It's pretty neat because what it does is it um, provides you with a different uh, character uh, recording for each character. In other words, uh, a different human being uh, records the voice for each character in that particular chapter. And there's often a musical backdrop. And so it's very effectively, very wonderfully done. And it just makes the Bible totally come alive for you. And so whether it's Bible Gateway 
or Bible Hub. Those are two of the Bible apps that I have. Now, there's also Uversion. Uversion, I understand, is a very fine uh, Bible app. I don't personally have that on my phone because I already have two Bible apps, but I understand Uversion is uh, pretty good and uh, very helpful to a number of people. And most of these Bible apps have a feature where you can uh, take notes and you can uh, not only take notes, but you can have the opportunity of, of, um, of um, you know, uh, uh, jotting down notes from your pastor. Or your pastor can jot down notes for you uh, to study at a later time. Uh, so that's you version. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the advantages we have today in that we have the ability to study the Bible with all kinds of aids and bells and whistles that we never had before. And I just think that is so neat. <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, in the last broadcast... In Mark chapter 14, we left off where Jesus and the disciples were praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, I sort of get the impression that this was actually a regular place of Bible study and prayer for uh, Jesus and the disciples uh, probably not so much a case of Bible study, but prayer. Bearing in mind, in New Testament times, they didn't have um, uh, a lot of copies of scriptures like we do today. The most they would have had would have been the Old Testament. And since this was prior to the printing press, um, we can understand that scrolls containing the Word of God were very scarce and they were very limited. So it was probably mostly a place where they gathered for prayer. And so they have this uh, uh, Last Supper in the upper room, and all of the disciples, including Judas, are there. And then apparently after, immediately after, the Last Supper, the Bible says they sung a hymn, and then after they sung a hymn, apparently one of the disciples decides to leave very suddenly and very quickly. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, accompanied by a crowd of armed swords, and clubs sent from the chief priests, scribes, and the elders. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. He says, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away securely. Going directly to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, and kissed him. <laughs> now, you know, this is uh, quite the betrayal 
Bearing in mind, Judas had a position of responsibility in this group of disciples. He, he was the treasurer. He was the money bag keeper. And so he walks up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi. Now, to refer to Jesus as Rabbi, now this was a Jewish term. And it was showing high respect to Jesus by referring to him as a rabbi and kissed him. Now, we would probably frown on that today, but this was a very common way of men greeting men back in those days. And so what would have been normally a gesture of goodwill and love and affection had become, in effect, an act of betrayer, an act of betrayal, rather. It says, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. So now this indicates that apparently Judas, during the last couple of weeks at this point, has been spending time with these religious leaders, helping them to take Jesus into custody with very little fanfare and basically with no crowd. And unlike the religious leaders, Judas knew exactly how to arrange that. Now, it's also interesting to point out Jesus knew ahead of time that this was going to happen. Um, let's see. I'm trying to back up a little bit here. Um, but anyway, Jesus had predicted that he would be betrayed. And he, he said this was all a fulfillment of prophecy. And so this was going to happen anyway. But he said, woe unto him that would in effect be an instrument of this taking place. Now, another interesting thing that I came across today as I was researching all this, we actually find that the betrayal of Jesus at Gethsemane is actually recorded in all four of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. And John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Now, in two of the Gospels, Peter is actually... Um, well, before I give this, I'm getting ahead of the story. Let's um, read what happens after Judas kisses Jesus, and then I'll comment on what these four um, different Gospels have to say about it. It says, Then the man seized Jesus and arrested him, and one of the bystanders drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
Now Jesus asked the crowd, Have you come out with swords and clubs, clubs to arrest me as you would an outlaw? Every day I was with you, teaching you in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But this has happened that the scripture said would be fulfilled. It says, Then everyone, everyone deserted and fled him, deserted him and fled. One young man who had been following Jesus was wearing a linen cloth around his body. They caught hold of him, but he pulled free of the linen cloth and ran away naked. Ran away naked. Now, this thing about the ear of the high priest being cut off, this is very interesting. It's interesting that two of the four Gospels identify Peter as the bystander who cut the ear of the high priest off. Two of the Gospels don't. Two of the Gospels don't identify who uh, cut the ear off. Mark is one of those Gospels. Now let's take a look at Matthew chapter 26, the Matthew passage. It says here, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Go and arrest him. Going directly to Jesus, he said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend Jesus replied, Do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. At this, one of Jesus' companions drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Are you not aware that I can call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12,000 legions of angels, or 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say this must happen? Now, Matthew is the other gospel writer who fails to identify um, Peter as the one that cut off the ear. Now we go to Luke and his account. Um, he approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with the kiss? Those around Jesus saw what was about to happen and said, Lord, should we strike him with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So apparently Luke doesn't do this either. So it must be that only John identifies Luke, uh, or I should say Mark, is the man who did this. And let's see. It says here, so Judas brought a band of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. They arrived at the garden carrying lanterns, torches, torches, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was coming to him, stepped forward and asked, Who are you seeking? 
Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. Jesus said, I am he. And Judas, his betrayer, was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who were you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I told you I am he, so if you were looking for me, let these men go. That was to fulfill the word he had spoken. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Now here is where John says, Then Simon Peter, notice he identifies Peter by first and last name, Then Simon Peter drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So notice John was able to do that as well. Put your sword back in its sheath, Jesus said to Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And so we find that indeed and in fact, this event where Jesus, where uh, I should say where uh, uh, Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest, we find that only one of the gospel writers actually identifies Peter as the one that did this. The other three are strangely silent. Now, why is this? Well, we have to understand that each of these writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote what they wrote from their own perspective. And they were in different locations as far as the crowd was concerned. So some of the disciples saw things that others did not. And that would account for some of the different accounts about the ear being cut off. Now you'll notice the dialogue is a little bit different in each of these gospel writings as well. And once again, this is just a minor thing, really, because after all, each of these writers is writing from their own perspective. You know, sometimes you can listen to someone and somebody says, well, I think he said this, and someone else says, no, I think he said that. And that would pretty much account for the dialogue difference in these four passages. Now, I choose to believe it was indeed and in fact Peter that cut off the ear of the high priest. It sort of fits Peter's personality. Peter was one of these guys. He was very impulsive. He tended to act before he thought about it. He tended to say things before he thought about it. And you know, when you think about it, that's where we all get into trouble. When we say things or do things before we think about it and even before we pray about it. That's where we get into trouble. I, I can tell you right now, I have gotten into trouble more times simply because of the fact that I did something before I prayed about it. And that was not right. That was not good. It gets you into trouble every time. 
Now, you have to understand something else. Judas did this for 30 pieces of silver. Not surprising, like I say, Jesus, I mean, uh, Judas was the money keeper. He was the treasurer. Judas saw this as a way to make money. But it's so sad that he did what he did. And the way he betrays Jesus is by talking to Jesus as if Jesus is his best friend. Now, if we were in an actual classroom tonight, or we were in an actual group setting, I would probably ask you, how many of you have ever been betrayed by somebody? How many of you have ever been betrayed by someone you knew, someone you trusted, someone you looked up to? Might have been a, a close family member. It might have been your best friend. And do you remember how crushed you felt when you realized this person has betrayed me? I'm shocked. I can't believe it. And that's exactly what Judas did. Now notice it is Jesus, in each of these accounts, he points out that this has got to happen. What he's about to face on the cross, it's got to happen. Because there's no way it cannot happen. Jesus knew that the only way he could cover our sins was for him to die on the cross. Now, one of the things you study when you study the different offerings in the Old Testament, they had to use an animal without spot or blemish. Well, guess what? Jesus was without spot and blemish. He was like the lamb without spot and blemish. Jesus had no sins of his own. He was totally perfect, totally without fault. And yet he chooses to die on the cross, not for his sins, but for our sins. Now, by the way, this also points to the necessity of the virgin birth. The virgin birth is important. Because, as one of my professors told me when I was in college, it's the only way that you can explain Jesus. If Jesus had not been virgin born, then Jesus would have had a sin nature just like you and I. And just like you and I, he would have had sin. And therefore, he would have had to have died on the cross for his sins. He wouldn't have been able to die on the cross for our sins. But because Jesus was born of a virgin, because he did not have a sin nature, he was uniquely qualified to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. Amen. Well, let's um, read what happens next. We find that Jesus went before the Sanhedrin. 
Now, as I pointed out, the disciples were now beginning to follow Jesus at a guilty distance, except for John. Now, I believe that's why John could fill in some details that some of the other gospel writers couldn't, because John did not flee. And, of course, it's interesting to note that John is often referred to as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, or it appears that Jesus might have loved him more than the others in one sense of the word. It says here, Then they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes assembled, and Peter followed him at a distance. Notice that. Peter followed him at a distance. Now you see, back when Jesus was popular, Back when Jesus was drawing all the big crowds and everybody was cheering Jesus on, Peter wanted to come across like he was the best friend Jesus had. He said, Jesus, I'll even die for you. But when the crowds go away and now the persecutors have come, now all of a sudden we find that Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he sat with the officers and warmed himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they did not find any. But many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony was inconsistent. Then some men stood up and testified falsely against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another that is made without hands. But even their testimony was inconsistent. So the high priest stood up before them and questioned Jesus. Have you no answer? What are these men test why are the what are these men testifying against you? But Jesus remained silent. He made no reply. Now at this point, he's trying to be very quiet, very silent. We find that Jesus was like a lamb being led to the slaughter, not saying a word. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds out of heaven. At this, the high priest tore his clothes and declared, Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your verdict? Now, bearing in mind, under the law of the Sanhedrin, in order to make a case, they had to have two witnesses. And the truth of the matter is, they couldn't find any truthful witnesses at all. So some came forward giving false testimony. But the testimony was inconsistent, and therefore it, it, couldn't, it should not have counted either. 
So there was no valid testimony we could say against Jesus. And yet apparently the high priest is going to allow the case against Jesus to proceed. At this, the high priest tore his clothes and declared, Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Then the Bible tells us, Then some of them began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said unto him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And notice something very unusual. Look what happens when Jesus is denied by Peter. I mean, here Jesus is facing the worst night he's ever faced. And here's Peter. It says, while Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the servant girls of the high priest came down and saw himself warming himself there. She looked at Peter and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it. He says, I do not even know or understand what you were talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, and the rooster crowed. There the servant girl saw him again, and said to those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But he denied it again. And after a little while, those standing by said once more to Peter, Surely you were one of them, for you too are a Galilean. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And that, of course, will bring us officially to the end of chapter 14. Now notice it says here, Jesus broke down and wept. Or rather that Peter broke down and wept. Now I believe in weeping like this, Jesus, I mean, uh, Peter was expressing godly remorse, godly sorrow for the sin that he had committed in denying Jesus. Now this is a, a different outcome than what we find with Judas. We will later learn how Judas would go out and hang himself. That's not repentance. <laughs> That's just going out and hanging yourself, committing suicide. That's no answer. But here we find that Jesus, or should it say Peter, wept, and I believe he wept bitterly, showing true godly sorrow for what he had done. Amen. Now, it's interesting to note 
that Jesus knew this was going to happen before it happened. In fact, right after it happened, all of a sudden, Peter was able to remember, hey, this is what Jesus said I would do. Now, you have to realize what, Jesus, what Peter did here was so foolish because he was a Galilean, and I am told by biblical experts that the Galileans had a certain unique accent. And so when Jesus spoke, when Jesus spoke, he spoke using that very accent, the Galilean accent. And so he was clearly displaying the evidence that he was who they said he was, and yet all along, consistently, he was denying, denying, denying. So sad. And like I say, Peter is not the only one following at a distance here. You see, following Jesus was easy when you had all those crowds following Jesus. You might say when all the paparazzi was following Jesus, it was so fun, in many cases, to be one of the followers of Jesus. But now that being a follower of Jesus meant that you were going to be killed just like he was going to be killed, no, no one wanted part of that package. And so except for John, they're all following Jesus at this guilty distance. Now, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever betrayed Jesus? Has there ever been a time maybe when you either betrayed Jesus or denied Jesus? And, and you know, it's so easy to do when you think about it. You know, you're at work and you're at school and you don't want to be teased or mocked by the students or by your fellow workers. And so you don't even talk about the things of God. Because after all, you don't want them to know that you're a Christian. You're afraid if you let the news get out that you're a Christian, you're going to be made fun of. You're going to be ridiculed. People aren't going to have anything to do with you. I have been told that in some companies, if word gets out that you're a Christian, you could forget about a raise. You can forget about a promotion. Because guess what? It's probably not going to happen. And that's the sad truth. And I think, furthermore, here in the United States and in other countries around the world, I think in the next few years, we're going to be facing more persecution than ever before. In fact, here in the United States, I think probably in the next year or so, we're going to be facing all of a sudden a whole lot more in the way of persecution. Because let me tell you, the worldly crowd 
They are doing everything they can to shut us up. The world doesn't like us as Christians, and they don't like our message, and they don't love the God that we serve. And they're going to do everything they can to shut us up. But we as Christians have to ask God to make us just as bold as we know how to be. Just as bold as we know how to be. And that we will be willing to take a stand for Jesus no matter what the price might be. The other day on one of my radio platforms, I was preaching a message, and I was sharing about how this Jewish man that I knew one time came to know the Lord. He had ended up in federal prison on mail fraud charges, and uh, while he was in prison, he was given a copy of the New Testament, and he began to read the New Testament. Now, he didn't have access to Christian radio or Christian television. He didn't have access to a pastor or any of the Bible teachers. None of that. Absolutely none. But he started reading the New Testament, and the more he read, uh, the more he read the New Testament, the more he became aware of the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And so as a Jewish man, he prayed, and he asked Jesus Christ to come into his heart and save him. Now this man came from a very traditional Orthodox Jewish family. And when he got saved and came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, you know what happened? they decided they weren't going to have anything to do with him. They decided they were going to bury him. And so they had a mock funeral. I mean, complete with a casket and a funeral home and a grave and everything. And as far as they were concerned, he was dead. And they would never again have anything else to do with him. And they didn't. You see, for him, getting saved and coming to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, it required something special. It required that he be willing to lose his own family, to lose his relatives. They all turned against him. But in spite of that, he said, yes, Jesus, I will serve you. Amen. <laughs> I, I remember one time I was uh, interim pastor of this church in Franklin, Louisiana. And I remember on Sunday morning, pretty much every Sunday morning come to think of it, this one lady came to church. She worked on the third shift at the local hospital. It's a small town hospital. She worked on the third shift, and in my lifetime, I've had jobs where I had to work on the third shift, too, and so I know it's not fun 
working on the third shift. You get off work, and man sakes alive, you feel like death warmed over. <laughs> you are tired. But in spite of how tired she was, you know what? She went somewhere like Waffle House, got her a breakfast, and guess what? She came to church. She came to Sunday school. She came to Sunday morning preaching. And then, of course, she went home and went to bed. But I thought to myself, <laughs> what a sacrifice that woman had to make to receive Christ as her Savior. Now, in her case, she came from a Catholic background. All of her family and relatives, they were staunch Catholics. And she realized that if she got saved, her Catholic family was going to disown her. They would have nothing to do with her. And yet that was a price that she was willing to pay in order to take a stand for God. And that's what she did. And I've often had to ask myself, what am I sacrificing in order to follow God? What am I putting on the line in order to follow God? I, I remember, uh, in fact, just before I accepted the interim pastor, pastorate, where that particular um, lady came and got saved from the Catholic Church, I was working a security guard job. And so when that church contacted me about being their interim pastor, they said, we want you to come and be our interim pastor. And I was indeed interim for five months. Now, that's the thing about being an interim pastor. You don't always know how long you're going to be there. <laughs> it might be for a long time. It may not be for a long time. It might be for just a very short time. But you go, and at some point, your tour of duty will be over with. But I remember in order to accept that position as interim pastor, I was going to have to resign the job at the security guard company where I worked. And that was not an easy decision. In those days, I made $175 a week as a security guard. You know what kind of paycheck I got from the church? $75 a week. I took a $100 a week cut in pay in order to be a security guard. And yet I was willing to do it because I knew that was what God was calling on me to do. So I did it. How many times are we willing to give up something or even to give up someone we love in order to do the work that God has called us to do? What kind of sacrifice are we willing to make? Amen. <laughs> you know, Jesus talked about taking up our cross and following him daily. The Lord gives us a cross to take up. You see, following Jesus requires a daily commitment. It's not something you could do for a day or two and then go back to your old routine. If you're serious about following Jesus, it's going to be a rest of your life kind of thing.
And I have found relatively few people willing to make that kind of a commitment. But for those that do, it is so worthwhile. Because one of these days, as Christians, we get to move into our heavenly home. Jesus said himself, in my Father's house are many mansions. So one of these days, in spite of any sacrifice that I've had to make for the Lord down here, the Lord will more than make it up for me. He says, Warren, guess what? I've got a mansion for you over in heaven. Man, let me tell you, I can hardly wait. Hey, Amen. A mansion. Can you believe that? <laughs> I remember the first place I ever lived in on my own outside of my parents' home. I was a student at William Carey College. It was the summertime. And I had decided to stay in Hattiesburg and work a job there in Hattiesburg over the summer. And I wasn't able to stay in the dorm that summer since I wasn't taking class during the summer school session. So I rented me a trailer in a small trailer park there in Hattiesburg. And it was a very small trailer. I think the rent was about $75 a month. I mean, it wasn't a lot of rent at all. It's a very cheap trailer. And to be honest with you, it was not in very good shape. The air conditioning hardly worked at all. It was one of those old Airstream type trailers. But I thank God, you know, when I move into my heavenly home, I'm not going to have an old beat up Airstream trailer. The Bible says I get to move into my heavenly mansion and the same deal that God made with me, he's made with you. And then, of course, we get to meet our Christian loved ones who have gone on before. We get to meet all the heroes of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, the whole gang. And most of all, we get to see Jesus. And folks, let me tell you something. I so look forward to that. I would be crazy in the head not to look forward to something like that. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? You might say, well, I'm religious. I go to church. I didn't ask you that. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? If you don't, let me tell you, it's pretty easy. You just have to pray and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your heart. Just say, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. Lord, I admit that at my very best, I have sinned. I've come short of the glory of God. But God, I call on you to save me with the blood that you shed on Calvary's cross. And Lord, I now thank you for saving me. And now, Lord, that I'm saved, help me to live like I'm saved. And help me to be willing to learn more and more about your word, the Bible, and to share you with other people. For it's all these things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer just now or a prayer similar to it, I have some great news for you. God has saved you. And I hope that you'll contact me and let me know. I have two email addresses, warrenlandis at yahoo.com and also warrenlandis at gmail.com. 
Either way, I would love to hear from you. I'll send you some materials that will help you to grow as a Christian. And I'll even contact you and help you get into a good church in your particular town or city. Because I do think it's important that all of us as Christians get involved in a good local church. Okay, that brings us to the end of tonight's get-together. I hope you had as good a time as I do. I tell you, I have a good time every time that I get into the Word of God. Amen? So until next time, this is Warren Landis saying goodbye. God bless you, and guess what? I'll see you next time on Sunshine USA.